0: Hello and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. This episode is brought to you by Staffing Referrals, the only automated referral management platform chosen by smart staffing firms. Tired of wasting money on traditional job boards? Sick of reminding recruiters about promoting your referral program? Wish you could eliminate admin work spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews? That's where Staffing Referrals comes in. Imagine transforming your entire talent pool into digital recruiters on behalf of your company. Think about how happy you'll make your team by eliminating wasted time spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews. There's a reason that staffing referrals is one of the fastest growing software platforms in our industry. It's because staffing executives want to scale faster by automating recruiting processes. It's because with staffing referrals, you can actually see an ROI. And it's because our world is now more digital than ever, and your candidates expect you to keep up. Don't get passed by the competition. Stop missing referrals and start recruiting smarter. Get Staffing Referrals and improve your tech staff today. To claim one free month, visit www.staffingreferrals.com slash show. That's staffingreferrals.com show.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of The Staffing Show. I am super excited today to be joined by Tim Glenny, who is the managing partner and co-founder of Bridgeview. Tim, thanks so much for being on the show today. To kick things off, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and a little bit about Bridgeview?
2: Great. Well, Dave, thanks for having me. Excited to be on the podcast. So a little bit about myself, as, as you mentioned, managing partner, co-founder of Bridgeview with my business partner, Chris Beisler. We started the company back in 2005, based here in Denver, Colorado. I've grown a lot over the years and worked throughout the US in, in most of the major markets. We run a technology consulting firm, Bridgeview. We started out Working kind of a hybrid in the IT staffing space, doing a lot of contract, contract to hire, full time search. On the search end, we'd always focused more on the leadership search. You know, one of our big mantras. As a company is building highly capable technology teams and you know when Chris and I started the business we had both worked for larger companies where maybe there was a bit more of a, a shotgun approach and you know really what we focused on is working with fewer clients and working with them more deeply you know our general clients are enterprise clients that are you know generally over a billion dollars in revenue you know they're in different markets they have large technology imprints. Not to say that we don't work with companies that don't fit that but usually there's a, a large imprint of technologists within their companies you know if you compared like a financial services company that might be ten thousand people they might have six or seven hundred in the technology group but we work with technology companies that might be two thousand people but they have a thousand people in technology so just more of a general guideline of the type of clients that we work with but we definitely work in the higher end of technology as we moved over the years you know building Teams, you know, a bit more consulting and project work came our way. And so we had an evolution into, you know, being more pure play staffing to truly being, you know, hybrid consulting firm, really working with companies at a strategic level and advisory level, and really making sure that, you know, their business goals are being met and that they're happy doing what they're doing. Specific to myself, I've been in the industry over 20 years. I started on the technology side. I worked for a graduated school out of Florida. moved up to Boulder, walked at a software company up there and just learned a lot about software and technology and working with clients and implementations and software builds and working with software developers and project managers and product owners. So I learned a lot there. Also worked at a consulting firm where we were a boutique Java shop. Uh, it was an international firm based out of France, where we did a lot of J two E development back in the days when BA WebLogic was huge and really kind of the the birth of the internet and helping big companies like Southwest Airlines stand up online ticketing systems and eBay and those type of companies. Had also worked in the IT staffing industry with some pretty large firms. And one of the things that has been consistent throughout my career is I generally work for companies that were based elsewhere and were building up a Denver presence. And so I learned a lot about how to build up a team internally and to go from X amount in revenue to growing it 10 times, right? And, you know, one of my impetuses from starting my own business with Chris was, you know, I'd helped, you know, several companies build up their presence and felt that I wanted to have a little bit more ownership and fulfill my entrepreneurial spirit
1: yeah and, and so what was the moment when you decided to go out and launch Bridgeview?
2: Well, the last company I was working for a large billion dollar i t staffing consulting company, and I was doing stuff on the side and you know reading a lot of entrepreneurial books, thinking about, hey, do I want to go get an m b a and what am I going to do next right Because I was on the the track where i was I was quite successful in the company, and I just saw that's not where I wanted to be and you know I'd started just some side businesses I used to have uh, some vending machines that I'd put out on the weekends and I realized that was a, a hustle that I didn't want to do. <laughs> so luckily, Chris and I were friendly competitors, and he approached me and, and, and also had some desires and, and, and talked about starting something up uh, with our common experience. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I'm like, yes, let's do this. And you know, we started planning it. You know, We exited our companies and then founded Bridgeview, uh, had great support from our wives. Neither of us had kids at the time. So it was just the perfect time to start. And, you know, we bootstrapped it, worked out of our houses, you know, hired our first employees, you know, we got office space, just kept growing. We launched another market. So it's been a really great evolution.
1: That's pretty awesome. And I also know, I mean, You're one of the more dynamic people I know in staffing, and some of the things that you've done have been pretty cool. And you guys recently went through a rebrand, and you were talked about this a little bit how you guys were focused on kind of more of the traditional staffing model and now are shifting towards a kind of a solutions orientation. Maybe you could tell a little bit about the rebrand, what that means for you, what inspired the change, and kind of how your business has evolved over the the years.
2: Yeah, I know, I appreciate that. It's definitely been an organic thing. You know, I mentioned earlier when we were working with clients we weren't the typical IT staffing company and we were taking on these projects and you know building up teams and we worked on the east coast with wall street journal and they were doing a replatforming of uh, wsj.com and you know we're putting together teams but they were, you know they were all contract resources and you know we came to a point where we said we wanted two things one we we wanted you know, dedicated resources that worked for us. That you know, where we could get this experience and continue to leverage it for other clients and and share experiences. And you know, really, what we learned is many times projects would get funded, but they didn't have clear direction, and and it was almost like they're running before knowing the destination. And we really wanted to get in at a strategic advisory level in their roadmapping phase, and really make sure they had a roadmap and they had defined goals, right? And where they and innovation, ideation phase, right? Where they're trying to come up with what they want to do. Is that fully formed? Have they done any, you know, prototypes or MVPs? Have they gotten to the point, you know, where they've actually had some progress, right? Or no traction at all. And so we knew we didn't have that skill in-house. We were very fortunate. One of our original clients, she was a CTO and SVP engineering of some very successful technology companies. And she was at a point in her career where she was looking for something different. And we said, hey, how about joining us and, you know, helping us spin up the consulting division and you know she'd been on both sides of the fence and i think the most important thing is when we're working with CTOs and CIOs and leadership teams at companies she's been in their seat right so there's a lot of understanding and empathy that she can provide to those clients and then we built a team around her with diverse skill sets to support each stage of project development from the inception phase all the way to delivery to adoption phase
1: And what are some of the advantages that you've seen by offering the consulting and also the IT staffing and accommodation?
2: Yeah, well, I think if you look at a bespoke model, which we see many times in larger companies, you know, they're working with many different partners and vendors. And a lot of times there are breaks in communications and sometimes, you know, vendors are trying to cut out their piece of the pie, for pure monetary reasons, but we really come in it as looking at the client success, right? And really wanting them, if they're implementing Salesforce or so they're, you know, re-replatforming older technology to get to the finish line. And if we can get involved in each step of the process, like we don't have to have all the people there. we're not trying to be the only vendor, but we want to be the consistent vendor from the the initiation phase through the adoption phase and what we've seen is you know there's management consulting firms that want to come in and be in the front end right and then there's other you know the big four they want to come in and take over the whole project and land and expand and then there's staffing firms that just want to take one off resources and you see a lot of competition and hodgepodge where there's a lot of self interest and not really client interest so what we're really trying to do is elevate the client and say hey you've got a partner at each stage of your journey you know we might not be running the whole thing but what we see miscommunications or deadlines being met or just things that aren't positive for the client, we, we want to highlight that and say, hey, here's what we're seeing and we're here
1: to help however we can. That makes sense. And, and with this, because I know I talked to a lot of IT staffing firms that are looking at how do they grow faster? What you know, what's their, should their strategy be? What are some of the challenges that have come along with kind of shifting to having a consulting practice in addition to just the traditional IT staffing component?
2: Yeah, I, I think it really depends what you, what your entry point and relationship point is within the client. You've been in the industry a long time. And you know there are many large staffing firms that grow by working with large clients on a vendor list run by a vendor management system where they'll select 20, 40 vendors and they'll have tiers of vendors. Yep. And they'll just pump out job requirements to them. And it's really... There's really no client interaction. It's basically you get a requirement, you send a resume in, you hope you get an interview, and it's really a, a hands-off approach. And, and so there's really no collaboration. And one of our mantras as a company is we're, we're a partner, not a vendor. And if somebody's just looking for a vendor to, to work through a system, that's not what we do. So we really eliminated that business. From our model, and went to all direct business where we have a relationship with the leadership team or executives. You know, it's, it's got to be at least a, you know a, a director or VP level, and we need to know not that you just have a job, but what are you hiring for? What problem are you trying to solve? What project are you trying to launch? We're in the most competitive talent market that we've ever been with technologists, and when we're calling that candidate, they're getting called by twenty other recruiters. We need a story, and we did let them know we just don't need a full stack developer is we need somebody who's helping a company, you know, launch a new initiative or transforming platforms that are going to serve a million customers. And it's in this space and, you know, here's what you're helping create, right. Versus you're just going to be a coder.
1: Yeah. And I feel like having recently hired a few senior engineers, that's, People want to be bought into what you're doing, the culture, the team. It's more than just, hey, here's some money and come work on this with this code base. How has this impacted your growth overall as you've kind of had the rebrand and also the shift to consulting? Have you seen it accelerate things? Has it slowed things down temporarily or what, what's, how's it worked for you guys?
2: Yeah, no, it's been great. I mean, before we went through the relaunch, you know, we picked our top clients and we talked with them about what we we're doing and, we went through some iterations of the plans because we basically said, here's what we're seeing, and here's how we think we can pivot and help you. How does that message land with you? And we got really great feedback. We got great support, and, and, and we listened to them. And because we said, once we get this, we're coming right back, and we're going to want to have discovery meetings about what we're doing and how we could help in a different way. So I think we really want to be informed and not just be in a box thinking about ourselves and thinking this is what clients want. We're like, here's what we've heard from multiple clients, and here's what we're doing to address it. What do you think? And so yeah. it was a really good iterative process of not just coming up with something and saying, hey, this is what we think you need. It's like, you've told us this is what you need. We put it in this package. And now
1: let's talk about it. Uh, that's great. I mean, it's, it seems like such a simple thing, but also something that I see missed so often is just getting the customer feedback on the concept, on the new feature, on the new build before actually rolling it out, making sure it aligns with what, what people want. And it sounds like you kind of built out your, the whole business unit that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, even, you know, before we did this, you know, we've worked with some industry partners that, you know, that really create this perpetual feedback loop. So, you know, in our business, there's always the client, right? And there's humans there working. And then, you know, they give us a project and we go get technologists to come in and do that work. And we want constant feedback. You know, from the client, how is it going on the project? How is our resources and team doing for you? And we want to know from the resources, hey, is this what you thought it would be, right? And are, are you enjoying it? Do you have any blockers in your path? Are there any issues you see or opportunities that you know things could get better? And you know, a lot of companies I've found don't want the feedback; they just want people to keep billing. And for us, is, we want the feedback early and often. And because when we get the feedback, we can make adjustments, right? And it's like, yes, do more of this, do less of that. And so we've based the company and we've used automation and technology and platforms and obviously human contact to really pronounce what is going on instead of just you know, putting people out to work and, and, and just hope it works out. So it's, you know, it's really intentional in the way we approach it.
1: I love that. And, and with that, you kind of brought up the the technology component. And I know you've been an early adopter of a lot of technology throughout within staffing, but wondering if you kind of had a viewpoint and just like, one of the questions we hear all the time is like, what technology to go after or how to approach building your tech stack? I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to do that, be intentional about that and make sure you're strategic about it as well.
2: So in regards to our own technology stack, you know, we started in 2005 and we started, we never wanted a server, right? We wanted everything to be web-based and we wanted open APIs on our platform so we could have a main platform, but then we could build on that and partner with other companies as needs changed over time, right? And so, an important thing for me to do was to build relationships within the industry of partners that could support us. And I, you know, I go to industry events, I network with people like yourself that are entrepreneurs that are building things, and understand what they're doing. Usually, I get in early stage with, with with those folks, and I let them know. You know, the same thing. I don't want to you to be a vendor. I want you to be a partner to us. I want to understand your roadmap as a company what you're trying to do and I want to try to help make your product better because most technology companies don't have shmies that have been in our seat on our side right and so they're very anxious to hear what we have to say and they want to understand our business model and what our challenges are and what I've found throughout the years is that we set the table right we're able to have a great relationship I've worked with a lot of you know chief product officers at different companies with the development teams Loom's one of my favorite things to use because I could show them on my screen. Here's what That's I'm saying, so right? And getting the strategy sessions with them and just, you know, offer my help. And it always comes back tenfold because, A, you build a great relationship with entrepreneurs building a technology company and you know the space you want to play in, right? Everybody's usually coming at it from, from a good place. I think an important thing when we select a technology company is we never want to get locked in a long term. Contract because a lot of companies are great at showing their software and all the things that work right, but they don't show you what works wrong. And, you know, we've gotten in situations where that's happened. So we're very intentional with our contracts, you know, if there's implementation costs, just that we have an out if it's not what they said it is, right? And it's like, if this doesn't work, you know, as described, as demoed then we, we get to opt out. And we've had to do that you know a couple of times, but most times it does work. But we do a lot of vetting on our vendors and having a great consulting team that have built systems and know how to evaluate vendors. We've got a great system for doing that. And it's really helped our growth. And we have a nice stack with many companies that we work with. And you know we're always evolving. We're currently assessing a couple of new tools for our company that will help. And it's always about using automation when automation is correct, and removing friction from the process and making it easier for the client, making it easier for the technologists to get things done. We don't want to impede. We want to just open the gateways for things to flow correctly.
1: Awesome. And great answer to that question. And shifting gears a little bit, you and I were talking just briefly ahead of this call about remote work and brought up a term that I actually hadn't heard, uh, Zoom cities. I think it would be interesting to kind of just dig into what is the Zoom city and what are some of the trends that you're seeing with remote work and technologists across the country? Sure. Yeah. I mean,
2: there's definitely some, you know, traditionally big hubs, typically on the coast of, you know, technology companies or just large companies using technology, whether in financial services, government, healthcare, And You know, they're typically San Francisco, LA, Seattle, New York area, research triangle. And so you have these big cities. And what's happened over time is they hire highly compensated individuals, house prices go up a ton, and you know, it becomes difficult for them to navigate their work life balance and you know, go to the mountains, go skiing, go to the beach, whatever it may be. And with the freedom that was created during the pandemic, you know, we saw maybe five to ten percent companies would or 5%, 10% of technologists would be allowed to work remotely, but majority, 90 plus percent, would have to be physically be in a location. And when you know, you're know you hiring in San Francisco and it costs over a million dollars to get a 500 square foot apartment, you know even if they're making great money, they're not having a great living. When the pandemic hit, they started really seeking lifestyle places. So Boise, Idaho was one of the first ones to really grow, where once they knew they could work remote with Zoom they were going, and they were actually able to do cash offers on houses because whatever they sold their house for. Yeah. In, in San Francisco, the, the remaining balance was enough to buy a house in Boise. Montana is a, another Zoom city that we've seen. People love the outdoors. I mean, it's 40 minutes of skiing there. There's rivers, there's biking, you know, great just culture within the town. And, and so we're really seeing when Zoom works, right, hence the term Zoom Cities, Tulsa is another one where there's great cost of living. Right. Uh, they pay, pay $10,000 rebates, uh, I think, this year for technologists to move there. They provide them free co-working space if they wanted. And, and you know, there's very affordable housing. So there's really this infilling that's going on where people are moving from the coast a little bit inward to where, you know, maybe the cities aren't as crowded. Maybe the schools are a little bit better. The housing prices are lower and there's still vibrant cultures within within these
1: places. How's that impacting, I guess, the geo arbitrage or you know, where you're just like, all right, well, I'm gonna hire developers out of Iowa or out of some area where there's a low cost of living. Are you seeing that there's still an advantage when it comes to hiring and geographies where there's maybe lower cost of living, or is it is that kind of being leveled out? Three years ago,
2: there was an advantage to that strategy, right? You could hire somebody down in Alabama or Florida where cost of living was less and you know you could probably hire them 20 30% less than the market because their local jobs just didn't pay as much but we're seeing it level out where location doesn't really matter companies actually used to do compensation based surveys like hey if you live in San Francisco we'll pay you more but if you move to Nebraska we're we're going to adjust your salary and you know with the supply chain issue. you know, There's there's obviously not enough uh, supply for developers and technologists, but there's huge demand. They just say no, and the companies have a choice to make. Keep looking for that smaller number of people who still accept smaller salaries. But I really think we see equity changing across the board is, my salary should be based on my skill. If I could be a remote worker, what does it matter if I'm in San Francisco or if I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska? If I'm delivering what you need as a company, then I should get paid the same as anybody in any other city because you really start to get you know equity is always an issue right within companies, if you have a development team if people have the same level and the same skill, they need to be paid in the same salary band and in many states like the state of Colorado that's now being enforced that regardless of you know your location your gender whatever it may be, if you're doing the same job, you get the same pay
1: to me that feels equitable it seems like it makes sense and I mean, we've seen the uh, salaries for technologists go up so much in the last few years. Do you think this, the supply and demand, this trend's here to stay? I know there's a lot of changes in the economy right now, but any forecasts on what you kind of see the future looking like for pay rates?
2: You know, we've seen, you know, if you look back to 2020, 2021, we were seeing almost 20% increases a year in salaries in in many positions across the board. And, you know, it really depends, right, with what stack they're working with. But, you know, a lot of the JS stuff with React and Angular, you know, it kind of goes through phases, which one's hotter, right? But, you know, if you're looking for the the higher-end skills... Yeah. As long as they're, the, the, the demand issue is there, I, I think they're going to increase, but I think there's going to be economic pressure on companies in certain industries to cap it because it, you can't have sustained double-digit growth on salaries for multiple years, right? You know, I've been doing this for 20-plus years, and there's always been a gradual increase of you know 3 to 5% per year. But if you look at a 20% increase, you just cannot have that sustained. At a certain point, budgets will be cut. And you know, it really starts with if you look at product companies, right, if you look at a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter, or any of these companies that have huge margins, right, where they have a forty percent margin, they have a decent budget to play with. And historically, you know especially the Microsofts and the apples during recessions, that's a lot of time when they grow. They buy other companies, they hire more employees because they see other people slowing down. But they know the cycle is going to pick back up in a year or two. So they basically double down, maybe they get a little bit of a discount. So as long as they're spending, there's going to be a place. But I think when you get into more of the service sector, you're dealing with healthcare, you're dealing with financial services, telecom, they have a limit, right? They don't have the same margin, some of the larger technology companies, and they can only go so high and the budget will hit the wall. I don't see a complete level out, but I see the incremental change slowing down.
1: And with that, um, what's your kind of forecast as as we're sitting in some uncertain times with the economy? Do you see, I guess, salaries flattening out a little bit? Do you see any other major trends from where you're sitting in terms of job orders coming in or any indicators of uh, potential recession at this point?
2: Well, typically what I've seen in a a down market It's kind of been interesting because I've been through three recessions in (laughs) my career and, you know, technology typically doesn't flatten out. You know, legacy skill sets will. I mean, we saw the shift away from a lot of the infrastructure work when that got automated, got put in the cloud with AWS and 365. But, you know, now with the higher end skill sets, I think companies are going to have to reduce workforce, but I don't know that it's going to be as much in the technology sector. I think that'll be a growth area continued for them because they could do automation you know for example if there's a call center they could create new technologies to lessen the amount of call center employees or, or just any anything that you could automate right I see companies getting more aggressive and leaning into technology with that so I do think there'll be some contraction overall in the workforce but I mean if you look at the you know Department of labor stats I mean there have been you know what is it 12 15 million open jobs in the economy, so maybe what we'll see is a lot of the open jobs just get shut. But I think for the jobs that are continually open, right, for technology jobs that have been open for some time, and the demand is still there, I think if you look at different skill sets, technology would be the cornerstone during the downturn, where it's at least steady, if not growing, a small amount. But I think the contraction will come in other areas within the companies.
1: Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And with the need for technology and what you can do with it, it feels like that's kind of just shifting of budgets, not necessarily reduction in demand overall. Uh, It's kind of depends Uh on where you're working at. Are there other kind of major trends that you're seeing in staffing right now or any other things that are impacting your business? You know, we work
2: obviously in the staffing world, the consulting world, Again, again, in down economies. You do see like they want to continue doing projects, but maybe they don't want as much, you know, sometimes large consulting teams. They want more of a hybrid approach. Like, yeah, hey, we'll onboard on board. Some consultants to do a lot of the advisory work, but other roles where maybe they were using consulting across the board, they look more for a hybrid because consulting rates are much higher than traditional staff augmentation rates. So I think we'll see more blending where they're trying to get more value-based delivery than paying premium
1: across the board. That makes sense. And with that, with, we're going to shift gears a little bit to some of the uh, additional questions that we add to the uh, the end of these podcasts. One of the areas that I've, I think you probably have great insight on with your 20-year history and, and staffing, what advice do you wish you were given before entering the staffing industry?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. You know, just embrace change, embrace the roller coaster of the business, never get too high, never get too low really try to stay even-keeled with the change and make sure that you align yourself with an organization that can pivot. I had worked with larger organizations where it was harder for them to pivot. You know, I'll use the analogy of like a large oil tanker versus a small speedboat in an obstacle course, right? And if new obstacles get plan down with a with an oil tanker, you know, they're gonna have to have an hour's notice and they're gonna make these slight adjustments. And you know, if the course is changing in real time, they're gonna struggle. Right. So I think even if you're a growing company, the ability to pivot, remain agile is key. And to just listen to the market and really understand where things are going. And don't say we've done it this way, it needs to keep happening this way is well, we've done it this way and it's worked, it works till it doesn't work, right? And, and understanding that and then pivot. And again, that's, I think, where competitive advantage comes in of having strong leadership teams is really understanding the market, really having confidence, and doubling down in yourself. So when we went through the rebrand, we did that during COVID. We knew many companies went into retreat mode, and we actually decided to spend more money and invest more in the company and further push our consulting arm and go through the rebrand because we were confident we're going to come out of it, and we wanted to come out of it in a stronger position than a retreat position.
1: Oh, that's great, great advice. Next question I've got for you is: In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? A couple things. You know, about five years ago, we we went through a transformation
2: as a company where we ran a system called EOS, and we really dug into what is our why as a, our company, what is our what, what are our core values, and to really live those values. And it becomes a filter for every single thing we do, and it transformed our company, transformed the culture, and what we do. And I think just in general, you know, trying to be a good person is just have empathy for situations of the world. There's been a lot of changes and really meeting people where they are, right? Sometimes you, a person could come into a situation and they have their belief system and you meet somebody else and they might be somewhere different. And I think instead of trying to assert where I'm coming from, is really understand where they're coming and meet there and then have them understand me as well. And it, to me, that's where true collaboration occurs.
1: I love that. And you mentioned EOS there. Are you guys still, op- is that still what you guys use as your kind of uh, operating system? Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, and it, it's grown a ton since we started doing
2: it. I mean, the, there are tens of thousands of companies running it. I know a lot of folks that do it. I know it's been transformational for us and, and for many other companies. So, yeah, it's part of the DNA of our company.
1: Awesome. That's, that's great. And what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Could be an investment of money, time, energy, et cetera yeah,
2: I think you know investment in personal growth is super important. I think when I was coming up as a kid and a young person, there was kind of this ethos of like figure it on your own, do it on your own. And as I started studying highly successful people, I realized they had built a team around them, right? If you take Derek Jeter, you know, arguably one of the greatest shortstops ever. You look at him and how many coaches he has. I mean, there's the obvious ones like the coach of the team, but then there's a batting coach. There's a fielding coach. There's a hitting coach. There's a strength and conditioning coach. There's a nutritional coach, right? There's a sports psychologist coach. There's a life balance coach. I mean, Derek probably had a team of 15 to 20 people that were highly trained in their field to help him become the best version of himself. So I think really being open to whether it's finding a mentor or finding a nutritionalist you work with or a spiritual advisor or whatever it may be for for your lifestyle, uh, be open to getting help from other people and embracing it and really trying to find people that that they're the best in their field, right? Like You aspire to be the best in your field. And, And if I'm looking for help, from somebody. I want to know that they're really good at doing it. They've helped other people. And then just, you know, give myself and and that matter to them and say, let's get better together.
1: That is great. And I've uh, not thought about it from a sports perspective. I absolutely love that. It it makes sense. So what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why?
2: Yeah, if it's, um, if it's for entrepreneurs, I love the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. I think anybody thinking about starting up a company or struggling with a, a company they're launching as a top book to read, I think just from the more life perspective, I love the book, The Alchemist. You know, It's just about the, the journey mm-hmm. of your life and creating your own personal legend. And sometimes where you start is where you end. I I think that's a great book. You know, there's probably a number of them. I I think, you know, Drive 2.0 by Daniel Pink is just great about really leadership in the 21st century where it gets away from that control and command approach or the carrot and the stick and really into, you know, the Daniel's three tenants are really around. When you have a team is really giving them autonomy, giving them something to master and then having something to really having a purpose, right? So we're doing this for a reason, right? And you know, for us as a company, philanthropy <laughs> is highly important. We do karma days where we take time off of work in the middle of the day to go help other organizations, and so that's really part of the purpose, right? And that's again built into the DNA of what we do. But every person that works for us, we're really driving them towards autonomy. So like, hey, you have a leader that you work with, but you know, you're really carrying your own bag, right? And you're really driving what you do. And then with the mastery is, you know, many people just get stuck in a job, but it's like, there's something each person could master on the team. And they're like, they're the expert for that. And I think that helps go into the purpose. It's like, you know, you might be a salesperson, but you're the salesperson that understands sales strategy better than anybody on the team. When it comes to strategy sessions, you lead those and help develop your approach to to engaging with clients.
1: That's great. Great recommendations there. Last question I have for you is: How does a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success?
2: Yeah, I believe in fail early, fail often, and I think using failure as a gift. I, I think there's a stigma around if you fail once, then you're done. But I think you know failure is critical to business. We've tried to do many different things, and some of them don't work. And I think it's really about failing, understanding what went wrong, and how to. Change the next time you do it? Did you ask enough questions up front? Did you do enough research? Did you talk to other people who tried to do the same thing? Right. And what was their experience? Because some things are just hard to solve. And people are like, oh, you saw that idea, you get the million dollar idea. Right. But other things, there's really a pattern of how to do it correctly. And, you know, I've realized sometimes I've tried to do something without really investigating it. I've built up a strong network of other, you know, business owners and leaders. And whenever I'm thinking about trying something new, I you know there's probably five to ten people I'll reach out to and say, hey, have you done this challenge? What worked? What didn't work? I don't mind failing, but I, I definitely like success
1: better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As do we all. So with that, Deb, do you have any closing comments for the audience?
2: No, I would just say you know if, if
1: people listening to this, if
2: there's anything I said that that you're curious about or want to engage, I'm very open to networking, and you know I love to to work with people and help people or learn from people. So yeah, please feel free to reach out. You know, I love talking technology. I love talking consulting. I love talking business. Just grateful for you having me on the podcast. And you know, I just really hope there's some value for folks in,
1: in listening. Oh, thanks so much for being on, Tim. Really enjoyed the conversation today. And thank you guys for being here. Thank you, Dave. We'll talk soon. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next
2: time,